Good morning. Very good to be with you. I appreciate having the text read for me. It's uh, when the text is a little bit long, my wife always reminds me to let the congregation know that since you normally focus one point per verse, if there's more than three verses that are read, you should let people know that your points will be around five minutes and not the normal ten minutes. So, no, there's only three points. I just, I know it's a familiar story, but I wanted us all to have it fresh in our minds and having just heard it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you in worship this morning. I want to compliment whoever selected the songs. The selection was perfect for the text and the theme. And uh, thank you for remembering Orphan Sunday. It is, uh, I think we, we sometimes rightly hesitate at all of these new ideas that every Sunday needs to have a specific designation, but this is actually not a new one. So before I start, I'm going to remind you that this is actually something that goes back to the days of the early church. In, our, in English, the expression we have for adoption we, that we usually use, the traditional expression, is to put up for adoption. And what you may not know is that that expression actually comes from the practice of the early church. One of the roles of the deacons in the church and one of the roles of what are sometimes called the women or the widows in the early church was to go out and find the children that had been exposed the night before and left uh, to the elements so that they might perish because they were unwanted. And part of the routine liturgy of the church in the earliest days was for one of these women or one of the deacons to stand up and part of the service and hold up the child and say, three days ago we found this baby boy. Who can take him? And so they were literally bringing the orphans to the front of the church and offering them to them. So it's so appropriate for us to remember that with prayer and as part of our service this morning. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for that prayer, brother. I also have beard envy now, so I'm going to try to repent of that while I preach. Our text is a familiar one if you've ever been to Sunday school, if you've ever attended church. This story is one of that repertoire of stories we teach children. It's one of those stories that we all feel that we know so well. And really, we do know it well. But over the past few years, I've had some trouble with my eye. And in that time, I've learned a lot about the neurology and how our brain works and how we see and perceive images and what our brain can see and comprehend. And one of the things that I've learned, and it's especially interesting to me as a fan of old movies, is that in the black and white scale, the brain can distinguish, in some people, up to 500 distinct tones or colors. But for those of us who can see in color, if you can see all of the spectrum with all of the tones and hues and the wide variation, that some people are able to comprehend up to 30,000 distinct tones and hues of colors. And I think that sometimes familiar texts to us are like watching old movies in black and white. We're so sure we know the story that we read the black letters on the page and we have kind of a flat image. But if we think about it for a few minutes, if we dive into the text a little bit more, if we think about the details, we sometimes realize that there are hundreds and hundreds of more lessons and details that make the story so much more applicable to us. That's what I hope to do this morning by looking at this familiar text. Over the past few years, I have read articles that have been shared on social media 
I actually remember the first one I saw about four or five years ago, and it, it sent me down one of those internet rabbit holes where I started looking for more and more things on the same topic. And what I discovered from this is that there is a growing problem that researchers are documenting as that, in that there is a lack of close friends among adults over the age of 30. This may be surprising to some of you, and to others, it may be all too true. British researchers have discovered that millions of adults reported that they lacked even a single close friend. Psychologists have long warned the danger of our mental health of being isolated from other people, of being alone. And in the past few years, medical researchers have demonstrated and discovered that there is actually something physiological to this. Research teams separately at York University and at Harvard Medical School have discovered that our cardiac health seems to be dependent on our ability to maintain throughout adulthood close relationships with other people. Stroke, heart disease, they have discovered that there's a high correlation between these things and loneliness. So it seems that lonely hearts are not only more likely to break, but to break down. Loneliness causes, it seems, disease. It's not just your cardiac health that may suffer from loneliness. If you've taken any university courses in psychology, you've heard, probably no doubt, of Abraham Maslow's 1943 paper, A Theory of Human Motivation. You remember the pyramid from the textbook? The pyramid of needs that start with the most basic and fundamental needs, the things that maintain our life, water, food, go up a level security, safety. And only after we have enough food to eat and enough water to drink and we're in a safe place to live, Maslow identifies the next most fundamental level of human needs. Remember it? Acceptance. Love. In other words, the opposite of loneliness. See, this is something that science has been proving over and over again for the last 60 or 70 years. And most recently, as we've, this time of COVID has stretched now almost to two years, some researchers are starting to warn us that there are spikes in deaths of, so-called deaths of despair, suicide, drug overdoses, and possible long-term effects of increased alcohol consumptions. Some researchers have even warned that it may be possible that we'll look back in 15 or 20 years and say that the number of people who died from the enforced loneliness of this period of time may rival the people who've died of the disease itself. Many of these people who've been studied who suffer from loneliness have described the condition of being lonely as feeling invisible. They say that they just feel like no one can see them, that they can be in a crowd and be certain that everyone is overlooking them. 
They see people's eyes looking to find something that they recognize, a familiar face to focus in on, someone to walk across the room to speak to them, and they are unseen. The reverse is also true. There are people who are invisible to us, and they are probably lonely. See, this is what our text is fundamentally about today. It's about a woman who is invisible, who expects to be unseen, and who is deeply and profoundly alone. This is our first point this morning. We see in the woman at the well a lonely woman. She is a lonely woman. We're introduced to her and we find out the first thing about her that strikes us as we read the text and meditate on it is that she is unexpectedly alone. She's at the well to collect water. Drawing water physically by a rope and a means of pulleys or levers as been done here at this time is, is such a foreign concept to us and so far from our experience it doesn't occur to us that it's something that is ordinarily done in a group. How many times have you already drawn water today? You showered, you brushed your teeth, maybe if you have small children you brushed several sets of teeth, you made coffee, flushed the toilet, you washed the dishes, you turned the dishwasher on before you left the house, you did all of these things and at every one of those moments you're drawing water and it's such an ingrained part of our daily routine that we are unaware of the fact that we're doing it and that all of the things that are involved in the miles of pipe and the pumping stations and the reservoirs and all the things that go into getting water to us so conveniently that it's never more than an arm's reach away. That's not how these people lived. All of the water that you would use all day, that you would drink, that you would wash your children's face with, that you would use to bathe, that you would cook with, that you would clean pots with, that you would use for ceremonial purposes, all of that water had to be drawn out of a well at the beginning of every day. And depending on your physical condition, maybe because of your advanced years or because of arthritis or because you're young, for whatever reason, it was something that many people required assistance with. And so the drawing of water in this culture is literally the work done by women first thing in the morning as a group. You left in the morning together with all of the women of your village of all ages. You walked to the well, which was outside of town, so as to be in a place where the groundwater would not be contaminated. You would draw the water up, fill large pots, people would fill pots, and you would carry them back into the village with you. Think about how much water you use in a day. This was a big job. It was a job that required assistance. And it was not just a job that was hard work, it was a social activity. This is where you heard the news from all of your neighbors. This is where you asked someone if their husband snoring kept them awake again last night. Where you heard if the new baby from the next street over had finally managed to sleep through the night. 
This is where you heard the gossip. This is where you heard the news. This is where you shared your own frustrations. This is where you received support. This is where you received the encouragement that got you through your day. This was the beginning of the day, and it was a social event. It was a shared task, and this woman was not part of it. She's not there. Not only does she have to draw the water up herself and not rely on some of the younger women who are still in the prime of life and we could pull it up and pour it into her smaller containers to carry back or maybe carry some of them forward, but she had no one to talk to. She's isolated from her neighbors. She's unloaned. She's unseen. No one had come to her house in the morning and said, did you sleep late? Why are you not coming with us? See, ordinarily, if you were not ready to go and everyone else was ready to go, someone would come to your house and bring you along. They would check on you and find out why you hadn't gotten up. They would find out if you were unwell. They would find out if some tragedy had happened in the night. Not her. No one asked how she was doing. No one knew whether something had happened in her household. No one inquired as to whether or not she was unwell. Because she was alone. Why? Why is she alone? Well, there's two theories suggested from the text that people have taken over the years as possibilities. The first theory is that her multiple husbands that Jesus alludes to when he tells her to go get her husband and she says... Uh, I don't have a husband. He says, well, rightly you've said because you've had five husbands and the man you live with now is not your husband. The first theory is this, that she's a person of low morals. To this day in the Middle East, there's a practice which has been enshrined in Islamic law which predates Islam. It goes back to this time, which is the practice in some Middle Eastern cultures of allowing for short-term marriages. In Islam, they can be as short as a few hours. In this way, an Islamic man who's traveling to another community, who is allowed to be married to three women at a time, can marry a woman briefly while he's in that village, and then he's no longer married to her when he returns home, so he doesn't exceed his limited number of wives. This kind of euphemistic description of marriage from our perspective we believe was the part of this culture at this time. So maybe, maybe she had short-term marriages. That's one theory. There's another theory which says that she is alone because she's so depressed and worn down by the difficulties of life that she has been married five times and every time her husband has died or divorced her and so she's crushed with the burden of guilt and shame and, and horror at all the things that have happened to her. And honestly, the text doesn't give us enough details for us to determine which of these two theories is correct. But you know what? It doesn't really matter because the effect is the same in her life. She'd finally stopped spending time with other people. Maybe she couldn't take their pitying glances anymore. Or maybe it was the sideways looks that contained all of the judgment that those looks, that can be inherent in those looks. But whatever it was, she felt overwhelmed by being with people, or they had pressed her out as being the other 
the outsider to the group, and she is entirely alone. So the effect is the same. The application is also the same. She is separated from the normal society of her community and is alone. She is so alone that she goes several hours later at the heat, the highest, the peak heat of the day to do a task that should be done when it is cool and not hot out. She is going when she knows everyone else will be napping. Everyone else is inside of their house where it's a little bit cooler at this time of the day. She has not only gone alone, she has gone when it's guaranteed to be alone. This is a lonely woman. Which brings me to my second point, that our text teaches us that she is not only lonely, she is invisible. She is an invisible woman. The first thing we see in her interaction with Jesus is how shocked she is that he has spoken to her. Now, if you find yourself in a bus shelter waiting for a bus and there's only one other person, you might say hello to them. If you're a maritimer, 100% you say hello to them. Then secondly, you ask what their grandfather's name was, and then you try to figure out whether or not you're related. <laughs> uh, but even, even in uh, Ottawa, if, you're, if you find yourself alone in an enclosed space with another person, in an enclosed kind of another person, you're going to look at them, you're going to nod, you're going to greet them, you're going to say something to them. I mean, you don't live in Toronto, right? But she is shocked that Jesus can see her, that he speaks to her. See, she clearly expected to be invisible to Jesus. And she had a lot of reasons to think that that would be the case. First of all, in this time, in this culture, men just didn't speak to women in public. It just wasn't something that happened very often. If it did happen on its own, it was something that was remarkable. But rabbis at the time wrote that a Jewish man should not walk in public beside his wife. Here's the reason. Because if a man is walking beside his wife when he's out in the streets, someone who does not know him or not know his wife will, might see them. And if they see them, they might think that they're talking together. And not knowing that they are married, they might assume that he is speaking to a woman in public that is not his wife. Therefore, a married man should not walk next to his wife while they're in public, but they should walk at least six feet apart. Rabbis said, don't walk next to your wife. But they again said, do not speak to any woman in public who is not your wife, who is not part of your family. But even there's a greater barrier than this because Jesus, as she clearly identified him immediately, she knew he was a rabbi by his dress. She said, she knew rabbis do not speak to women, especially Samaritan women. See, there's more than an ethnic conflict there. We, we sometimes think, oh, the, uh, the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along that well. That's why it was such a great illustration of the Samaritan rescuing the Jewish man. There's more than that involved here. This is a religious conflict. She immediately brings it up. She said, you Jews say you should worship at the temple in Jerusalem, but our fathers say we worship in the mountain. 
Uh, what she's asserting is a primacy of their historic religious practice, which they claim goes back to Abraham. Remember when Abraham worshipped God, he went up into the mountains, as did all the patriarchs, and built altars and there worshipped God. This woman is saying, we still worship God the same way that our father Abraham did. In fact, that's the mountain. That's the mountain where he took Isaac. That's the mountain where the Lord appeared to him. That's the mountain where we still go and worship. You Jews, you've built your temple over here. Herod, the Idumean, he's built this new second temple. That's, that's not where you're supposed to worship. We, this is maybe familiar to some of you who grew up in the Reformed world. We know the right way to worship God, and you're not doing it. See, there's a, there's a deep-seated religious conflict here. But for those of us who are used to telling baptism jokes to our Baptist friends, or hearing jokes about the Holy Spirit from our Pentecostal friends, you know, this kind of friendly rivalry between Christians of different denominations, that doesn't really capture what's happening here. A few years before, Herod's temple had been finished. It was the pride of the Jewish people. Everyone came to see the temple. It was an, uh, 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 an architectural wonder. The Jews were rightly very proud of this temple. The Samaritans, who were worshiping in their own tabernacle on the mountain, were an affront to the zealous Jews who wanted people to come and worship their temple. And so several of the zealots, which we hear about from time to time in the New Testament, went up to where this tabernacle of the Samaritans were, and they burned it down. Sound like anything you've heard about happening in the Middle East in the last, say, 40 years? The Samaritans were so outraged that they decided to get their revenge, and several Samaritan men banded together, disguised themselves as Jews, and walked into the temple courtyards, acting as though they were Jewish men there to worship. And then once they were inside, they reached inside their clothes, and they pulled out human bones and began to fling them about the, the temple, desecrating the holy grounds of the temple, causing it to have to be closed down and reconsecrated. This resulted in these people being torn almost from limb from limb by the angry mobs. And this level of religious tension, this level of terroristic attacks on each other, this is what the conflict was. This was a deep-seated hatred. It was not an ethnic rivalry or a debate over where you're supposed to worship. These were people who at this moment in history deeply hated each other. But Jesus saw her. She thought she was invisible to him, but he spoke to her. Some of you maybe feel lonely you feel unseen by others. But I'm certain there are also some here who feel invisible to Jesus. You are harboring in your heart some secret shame or regret. Your conscience constantly brings to your mind some sin, perhaps from years ago. Some failed relationship. Some poor choice that you made and you think there is no way that God can forgive this. There's no way that he can look at me, that he could see me, that he could know me because I am so far from him. I'm guilty like the people who walked into the temple and flung bones around. There's no way he wants to see me. 
Jesus sees that. Some of you are carrying with you a heavy load of guilt that you think is so high, that is so big, that you can't, he can't see you past it. But Jesus sees that. And here's the thing. He not only sees that, but he sees past it, and he sees the individual just as he saw this woman, and he reaches out to you as he reached out to her in spite of it. See, Jesus doesn't just see you, he loves you. He accepts you. Jesus saw this woman and he accepted her. It was against the law of the Jewish people to even touch something that had been touched by a Samaritan. And Jesus asked her to give him water. Not only did he see the person who was invisible, that was lonely, and he knew her, and he recognized her, he spoke to her, and he asked her for something. He offered her something that Maslow identified 70 years ago or so as one of our most fundamental needs, love, acceptance. That's our third point. I want us to see a couple of lessons from this. Here's the first lesson. Jesus already knows the worst there is to know about you. He already knows. And he's reaching out for you anyway. See, we know, we know what the worst of ourselves is. We can, we can suppress it for a long time. We cannot think about what we did. We can ignore the consequences. We can move on. We can start another relationship. Or, or we can uh, make peace with being alone. Or we can get another job. But we know what it is that we're carrying. Jesus sees you. And he doesn't just see you. He sees your hidden shame. He sees your secret sin. He sees your inner brokenness. He sees all of that about you. And he reaches out anyway. See, part of this invisibility that people who are lonely feel is that we feel like I'm not worthy of being seen. Of course no one sees me because if they saw me, they would know that I've never had a successful relationship that lasted more than a few months. If they saw me, they would know I failed at my job. If they could see me and they knew about me, they would know what I had done all those years ago and they would not want to know me. And so we we pull our, our invisibility a little tighter around us like a cloak that we feel comfortable inside of it. It covers just us. Because if they could see what was with us, what was in us, what was on our back, what we carried, they would not want to know us. Jesus sees it all and reaches in any way. Can you imagine what a relief that is? When you finally realize that, that it doesn't matter. Jesus knows the worst thing and he loves you. What a relief. What a sense of joy. What a sense of comfort to know that this is true. To be seen, to be truly seen as all you are with all of your flaws and loved any way. 
This is the first lesson. Jesus sees you and he loves you anyway and he reaches out to you and he calls you to himself and says, come, be my friend, be my servant, be the one who gives me a glass of water, be the one who comes into my kingdom with me, be my brother, be my sister. In spite of everything. It's been said that this is really what the gospel is. That it's two things. There's the bad news that you're worse than you really want to admit to other people. But there's a good news. That Jesus loves you more than you have any right to hope or expect. See, we're used to curating our lives in public for people so that they will like us. That's what social media is, isn't it? Follow someone on social media and their kids are always dressed in matching outfits. A house is never a mess. Vacations are always perfect. Everything about you looks great. But that's not always true. In fact, that's not our life. I like to post pictures of food, those you know me. Uh, and social media know that I post pictures of meals and things that I cook and things that I like. I like food. Probably comes as a surprise to you. Um, but you see that, you know what, but you don't realize, you know, you, you, sometimes people say, well, do you always cook dinners like that? Well, I can say I have never made craft dinner in 25 years. But that doesn't mean the kids don't eat it sometimes. See, we, 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 select parts of ourselves that we think that if people see this then I can have a relationship with them then I can be friends with them one of my nieces is a I think the word now is social media influencer she has all the things that go along with it the permanent tan the really slim physique the Instagram wisdom tattooed on her forearms and she was at a family holiday at the beach recently and one of her cousins was overheard say, Kylie, I'm tired of taking your picture. We're just going to enjoy the beach for the rest of the day. Because it takes work and effort to make yourself look like you're always having fun. And actually, it distracts you from living your life. We have been so busy constructing a life for ourselves and an image of ourselves that we think will make us acceptable to other people that we've somehow in the back of our minds convinced ourselves that we have to do that for Jesus too. That we have to come to church for Jesus to like us. We have to dress a certain way for Jesus to like us. We have to do all these things for Jesus to like us. And we've forgotten that Jesus already knows the real us behind the Facebook photos and he loves us. Here's the second lesson. Learn to see others as Jesus sees them, made in God's image, and deserving your love and compassion, and know that they also need to see Jesus and know that he sees them. Jesus met this woman at the well. He met her at a place of economic significance to her community, of deep cultural significance. It was a historically significant place. It had all kinds of reasons why people would naturally come to it. Jesus came there 
and he introduced her to himself. There's so much we could say if we had time to go on to this in other weeks, but about the disciples and their mission to go find food and how they skipped, curiously, this nearby village and went far away. There's so many things that we can see about this, but this is part of the lesson, is that the disciples also needed to learn that there were people here that needed to see Jesus. This woman runs into the village and she tells her neighbors, come and see this man who's told me everything that I've ever done. And still, still love me. And she brings her neighbors out and the disciples are there with Jesus and they're puzzled. What have you been doing while we've been gone? Why have you been talking to this woman? What's been going on here? And we know from the narrative, and the, the, the flow of the narrative and the timeline of Jesus' ministry and the things that he says, that this is the spring of the year. The crops have just been planted. And they're standing around this well with the disciples quizzing Jesus, trying to figure out how to make sense of what he's doing. And this is the lesson he has for them. He says, look, you have a saying. You plant and then in four months you harvest. But I'm going to tell you that it's time to harvest now. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields. And so they look, they look at the fields. And what do they see? They just see green shoots. But behind the fields, coming towards them down the road, are all of these people from the village. They're all walking towards them. The whole town is coming. And Jesus says to the disciples, there, that's the harvest. The people. See, this is the lesson for us if we already know Jesus. Is there's a lesson for us that there are people that we ignore, that we look past, that we go around, that we can't see. Jesus says, look at them. You've got these little truisms, these little agricultural sayings, these little things that you say that explain how the world works, like you plant now and then four months there's a harvest. Jesus says, no, the harvest is them. That's the second lesson. Some of you are lonely, invisible people that need to know that Jesus loves you. Some of you already know that Jesus loves you, but you forget. You forget that he sees you in spite of your sin. But all of us need to be reminded of this, that our community is full of lonely, invisible men and women who feel so alone, whose health is actually being impacted by their loneliness, whose psychological well-being is affected by their loneliness. And we need to know that Jesus cares for those people and he's calling us to care for them. He's calling us to see them and to look past what we see in front of us and see the people and know this is our calling. To see them as he sees them, as people worthy of his love and worthy of us knowing them so that they through us might know him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for John who records for us in such detail this account. Father, we ask that we, those of us who struggle with acceptance by you, might know that you stand ready to accept us and love us if we turn to you in faith. And for all of us, might we be reminded that you call us to see others as you see them and to bring them to you. Amen.